Please turn with me to the book of Jonah. <clears throat> Our text tonight will be chapter 1, verse 17, through chapter 2, verse 10. <clears throat> We've gotten through the bulk of chapter 1. I've uh, been learning much concerning Jonah, his calling, his sin, his rebellion, all of this. Tonight we are looking over primarily chapter 2, of course. We're going to start in verse 17 where he gets swallowed by the great fish. But we're looking at his prayer of repentance, really his restoration bringing him back to where he should be concerning his, his obedience and his respect, his reverence, all of that unto the Lord, whereas perhaps for a time he had lost it. Other things began to cloud his mind that led him into the rebellion that we found within chapter 1. But because of the sovereign hand of the Lord, because of the Lord restraining him from doing the very thing that he wanted to, it, it, yes, it caused distress. It caused a time of pain, of grief, of sorrow. But in the midst of that, God used that in order to bring him back, to restore him. And that is something absolutely that the Lord does Maybe not in the same way as he did with Jonah. But truly the Lord, when he chastens us, when he disciplines us, he often causes us grief and distress by, by restraining us from doing the very thing that we wanted to do. But because something else happened and something intervened, something caused us to be grieved in our souls or sorrowful, it ended up causing us then to turn our gaze back unto the Lord. And to repent of the rebellion that we had been committing. This is the very thing that we find within all of scripture of how the Lord disciplines his people for the purpose of godliness. We look to many passages like James chapter 1 or 1 Peter chapter 4. And we see how we are to count it all joy when we endure various trials knowing that the trying of our faith produces patience. We, we see how uh, we're, we're not to act as if some strange thing happened to us when we endure the fiery ordeals that come upon us for the testing of our faith. So we see that the Lord allows these things in our lives in order to strengthen our faith and to help us to, to uh, be more confident and trusting in Him and all of that. But there is that, that aspect too of when distress comes and when grief comes and when sorrow comes and trouble and tribulation, that this is also the chastening hand of the Lord that will bring about the same result as any other trial, we read of in the book of Hebrews that the chastening of the Lord is not something that is joyous, but afterwards it yields that peaceable fruit of righteousness. So whether we are enduring the various trials because of the chastening hand of the Lord or we're enduring the various trials simply for the testing of our faith, the outcome is still the same. It is to focus ourselves back upon the Lord to, to gaze upon his glory and his majesty, to bring ourselves low, to elevate him high, and to have confidence and trust in him and to revere him as he should be. What we're going over tonight is that other aspect of things concerning the chastening hand of the Lord. And yet, when the Lord is chastening this prophet, this rebellious prophet, he is not growing bitter. He is not... He is not cursing the Lord. He is not complaining, but rather he is being humbled and he is then, he is then repenting. He is, re he is sorrowful for what he has done and he is acknowledging the Lord to be whom the Lord is, the sovereign one, the gracious one. Because in this passage, Jonah learns a number of different things by being in the belly of this fish. Humility is one of them. Understanding his need for God's grace is another. Having, remembering what it is to, to serve the Lord and the joy that is there. And to remember, above all, 
that salvation is of the Lord. So we are going to jump into chapter 2 here, and I pray that God would use this uh, to encourage our hearts, to rebuke us if necessary, to help us focus in on where we need to be. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. We will begin chapter 1, verse 17, and read through chapter 2. Let us hear what the Word of God says. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which i have vowed i will pay salvation is from the lord then the lord commanded the fish and it vomited jonah up onto the dry land let's pray together gracious god and our father we give you thanks once again for the gracious god that you are oh father help us to remember this very truth that salvation is of the Lord. It is not in ourselves. It is all in you because of your sovereign freedom to grant it to whom you choose. Oh, Father, guide our thoughts tonight, and may we rejoice in the salvation granted to us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, and amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> So we remember the Lord has called Jonah to go to Nineveh, preach, because the wickedness of the Ninevites have come up before the Lord. Jonah understands the intention of the Lord, that obviously he is sending him there for the purpose of, yes, him preaching, but then them repenting. Otherwise, why would the Lord send him? Because the Ninevites are obviously pagans. They're serving other gods. There would be no need for the, for the Lord to send a prophet in order to further them into what they're already doing. He could leave them in their just condemnation and everything would be fine. At least in the sense of what Jonah would think. Instead, the Lord is saying, I want you to go there. And Jonah says, I'm not going. I give my calling back to you. I'm going the other way. And we remember that. Fleeing from the presence of the Lord is Jonah fleeing from the calling of God. Knowing that the Lord is everywhere, Jonah is just simply abandoning his calling. This great privilege that he has received from the Lord to be a prophet, he's abandoning it. I don't want it. If this is what in this, this whole thing entails of me going to Nineveh to preach to a people that I don't like, well, then I'm not going. Here it is. Have it back. So we remember how Jonah goes down to Joppa. He gets on a ship. He's going to go to Tarshish. The Lord sends a great storm upon the sea, and it is so severe that they're, they're throwing out some of the cargo to lighten the ship. They're telling every man, call upon your God. Maybe they'll, they'll have mercy on us. The captain goes into the bottom of the ship, into the hold of the ship. He finds Jonah peacefully sleeping. And here the captain 
rouses him up, call upon your God. It's not until the men are, are casting lots to figure out why is this calamity came, come upon us and the lot lands on Jonah. They ask Jonah, who are you? Where do you come from? Who's your God? And Jonah says that he is a Hebrew. He fears the Lord, God of heaven. That's Yahweh, God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So the men become ex- extremely fearful, extremely frightened, knowing that Jonah is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. So they try to row the ship. It's still not getting any closer. The Lord has hurled a great wind. So Jonah says, if you want this to stop, throw me overboard. Now we remember this, that Jonah still is not really repentant of what he has done. Otherwise, perhaps he would have prayed to the Lord then. Okay, I understand. Oh Lord, forgive me. Spare these men. We'll turn the ship around and I'll go to Nineveh. But no, he does not do that. He simply tells the men, throw me overboard. And it'll stop. He's intending on dying. And in one sense, he would rather die than go to this enemy of Israel and preach anything to them. So it's not as if he's actually repentant of what's happening here. So sure enough, the men throw him over. They had actually prayed unto the Lord and they had said in verse 14, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. And then, when the sea stopped its raging, the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So the men actually had a true, genuine conversion. Many theologians will agree that this was a genuine confession of faith on the part of the once heathen sailors. The Lord had used even the rebellious prophet in order to convert the hearts of these men who were Gentiles themselves. And we had talked about how amazing it was that that even within the sovereignty of God and in the providence of God, he uses even our rebellion in order to still bring about his intended will. Because we talked about if it was just a matter of restraining Jonah with some kind of a calamity, he could have done that in the 50 mile journey that Jonah had taken from where he was at all the way to Joppa. But the Lord did not do any of that until he finally got on the ship. And when he got on the ship with the sailors who were Gentiles, got on the sea, then the Lord intervenes in order to bring about the salvation of those men. That is an amazing thought of how the Lord uses even our rebellion, even our sin, in order to accomplish his perfect will. Whatever he intends to do, he does. And nothing hinders him from accomplishing his will and his purpose. And so that, in one sense, doesn't give us a license to sin whatsoever. But what we did talk about is that, is that it, it, does, it does give us hope. It does give us comfort. It does give us encouragement to know that in my time of disobedience, I didn't, I didn't have to have the Lord to give me a plan B even though I'm morally responsible for what I have done. Absolutely. But within the sovereign hand of God, him decreeing whatsoever comes to pass, he still accomplished what he intended, even in my rebellion. And we talked about how even in sin, often in sin, what does it do? Sin is evil and it is wickedness. It is an offense to God. But what does it do? What's going to do the very thing that it's doing for Jonah? Here in this chapter, his sin will produce this in him as a result of the Holy Spirit of God, obviously working this in him. So here we are. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now, I'm going to go over this just real quickly because this seems to take a lot of attention when you're talking about the the account of Jonah. Everybody's so fixated mostly with the fish. Well, what kind of fish was it? Was it a whale? What was it? Well, there's no shortage of opinions there. Some think that it was a whale. 
Others say it couldn't have been a whale because they're not within, they're not commonly within the Mediterranean Sea. I was actually looking this up earlier because of what James Montgomery Boyce says here. In one particular whale that is common to the Mediterranean Sea is that of the sperm whale, as well as other species of whale that are even bigger, but specifically the sperm whale was there. Some theologians would say, no, it probably wasn't a whale because this is a general term for a fish. It was a big fish. So some would say it was probably a sea dog or a shark. So it's, it doesn't really matter what kind of a fish it was. And actually, John Calvin, I was reading Calvin's commentary, and Calvin, he thinks that this was a very special fish in the sense that because the text tells us in the Lord appointed a fish, a great fish, or the Lord prepared a great fish, that this was a fish that the Lord had created specifically for Jonah. That it wasn't just one that just happened to be in the area, and the Lord says, right there's your food. It was one that the Lord had created then, in that moment, in order to swallow up Jonah. Again, it doesn't really matter, but just so we can kind of have a, an idea here, because it really boils down to this, either we believe this or we don't. Either we believe that the Lord is, is sovereign enough and powerful enough that he can preserve a man in the belly of a fish, or we don't. But considering all the other great miracles that have happened in the scripture, specifically the resurrection of our Lord, this really isn't that big of a thing. If we, if we really think about it. But just for our minds to be sharpened a little bit on it. James Montgomery Boyce, <clears throat> in his commentary on the minor prophets, specifically Jonah, he talks about how the Encyclopedia Britannica has uh, much information, articles that they would send during that particular time, that they would send to them concerning Jonah and the fish. Um, he says, if a person requests information on the possibility of a whale having swallowed Jonah, a four-page report will be mailed, the bulk of which consists of information taken from an article on the sign of the prophet Jonah and its modern confirmations, which was published in the Princeton Theological Review in 1927. So there's articles there that are in support of it, articles that are not in support of it. But it goes into the likelihood of a man can be swallowed, all of that. So he says the article leading up to this conclusion is in two parts. The first part distinguishes, as all honest writing on the subject has done, between those whales or other great fish that could conceivably swallow a man and those that could not. A generation ago, one heard that a whale could not swallow Jonah simply because the throat of the whale is too small. A whale has difficulty swallowing an orange was the viewpoint. This objection arose from a failure to distinguish between the Greenland whale, which does, not, which does have a very small throat, and which was the whale best known to seamen of an earlier generation, and the sperm whale, which has an enormous mouth, throat, and stomach. An average specimen of the sperm whale might have a mouth of 20 feet long, 15 feet high, and 9 feet wide. That is, the mouth... That is, the mouth would be larger than most rooms in an average-sized house. It is known that the sperm whale feeds largely on squid, which are often much larger than a man. Whalers have sometimes found whole squid of this size in a dead, in a dead whale's stomach. As to whether a man could survive in a whale's stomach, the Britannica article maintains that he certainly could, though in circumstances of very great discomfort. There would be air to breathe of a sort, it is needed to keep the animal afloat, but there would be a great heat, about 104 to 108 degrees Fahrenheit. Unpleasant contact with the animal's gastric juices, juices might easily affect the skin, but the juices would not digest living matter. Otherwise, they would digest the walls of the creature's own stomach. This is a little lengthy, but just listen here what he's saying. But has there ever been a case of a man actually having been swallowed by a whale and then regurgitated or saved by some means? This is the matter, <clears throat> this is the matter dealt with in the second half of the journal article, and apparently there are such cases. 
One case concerns a voyage of a whaling ship, Star of the East, which in February 1891 spotted a large sperm whale in the vicinity of the Falcon Islands. The two boats were launched, and in a short while, one of the harpooners was able to spear the whale. Those in the second boat attempted to attack the whale, but the boat capsized in the process, and one man was drowned. A second sailor, James Bartley, disappeared and could not be found. In time, the whale was killed and drawn to the side of the ship where it made fast and the blubber removed. The next day, the stomach was hoisted on deck. When it was opened, the missing sailor was found inside. He was unconscious but alive. Eventually, he was revived by seawater and after a time resumed his duties on board the whaling vessel. So, it is very possible. It has occurred. And if I'm not mistaken, it seems as if there was an incident of that just a few years ago of someone getting swallowed by a whale. Now, if you've seen that video um, of a couple of, of scuba divers that were treading water and their boat was over to the side videoing them, all of a sudden a huge mouth, two huge mouths, come up out of the water and, and close right behind them, uh, which were two humpback whales. Enormous. It was, it was unbelievable the size of these mouths compared to the scuba divers. But it's on YouTube. Everything's on YouTube. You can find it. But anyway, so yes, it is possible. Yes, it has happened. But even though it has happened, and there are animals that are big enough in order to, to do this within the sea, whether it's a whale or it's some other kind of a, a large, great fish, the fact of the matter is, is that this is still a very unique occurrence of what is happening to Jonah. The man who was swallowed in the account that we were just reading was unconscious when they found him. This is not the case with Jonah. He is well aware of what is happening. And in, in, his, in his distress that the Lord has caused him by restraining him from going even further than what he was intending on doing. And you think of the arrogance of Jonah. You think of the arrogance of this man who is saying to the Lord, yes, you have called me to be your prophet. You have called me to be your mouthpiece, to speak to the nations. But I don't think that they deserve salvation. So I'm going the other way. Now, if you think about the mentality of the Jews, even in Jesus's day, that they had this idea that salvation is theirs, that the Lord is their God. And no one else is deserving. So this is a very arrogant prophet. Basically saying, I'm telling you, you shouldn't be saving these people. And I'm not going to do it. I'm going the other way. Well, the one thing we don't do is we don't tell the Lord what he should and shouldn't do. And so in this man's arrogance and in his rebellion, he could have went all the way. The Lord would have perhaps allowed him to go to Tarshish and get in whatever situation that he could have gotten in there. But the restraining hand of the Lord says, you will do it my way. But in that sovereign chastening of the Lord, there is still that extension of grace to teach Jonah of grace and mercy and to bring him low. He says here, then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. The men on the ship prayed to the Lord. But Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. From the stomach of the fish. And here's what he says. I called out of my distress to the Lord and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. Now, if you look in, in your Bibles, depending on how it's it's listed in there, arranged, this almost seems like a psalm. It's almost arranged as a psalm in the sense of this is a personal prayer and soon to be perhaps thereafter a song of praise from the lips of Jonah. He calls out to the Lord, his God, out of his distress that the Lord has caused him. And his arrogance he goes the other way, but when he is brought low by the restraining hand of the Lord, he is humbled. He is humbled in the belly of this great fish. 
And he says, I cried out and you answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. Now, Sheol is, is the equivalent of the New Testament Hades, the place of the dead. Or it could mean the grave, depending. And in any event, you have to understand that Jonah is in the belly of this great fish, regardless of what kind of fish it is. You can, we can imagine the conditions in there. We can see, you know, perhaps what the heat would be like in there, or the darkness that is in there, the hopelessness most likely is what Jonah's feeling. Not necessarily any of the conditions that are outside of the fish, but what's going on in the heart of Jonah is the important part here. Perhaps he's thinking to himself, this is a hopeless situation. Where, where can I go? What can I do? This fish has taken me to the bottom of the ocean. Where can I go? And so perhaps in Jonah's mind, he's thinking this is it. This is the end. He's crying to the Lord from the place of the dead because that's perhaps where he thinks that he is going. He's getting ready to die. So he cries out to the Lord. And in that cry to the Lord, you see that he is indeed humbled by this. He's no longer telling the Lord, this is what you ought to be doing. He is now crying out to the Lord, I need you. I understand. I'm humbled by your restraining hand. And yet, you got to understand too, th throughout this whole ordeal, that there is grace that is extended to Jonah and mercy. That fish could have swallowed him and he'd be dead. But instead, he's preserved alive within the belly of this fish that the Lord is giving him more time and teaching him of his gracious nature. I could have taken you out, but I haven't. And so Jonah's crying out then. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me, and all your breakers and billows passed over me. You know what he's acknowledging here? He's not acknowledging that these men threw me over and look what happened. He's saying, no, Lord, this is your hand that has done this. There's a recognition and an acknowledgement on Jonah's part in this great distress in which he is enduring in this very moment, Lord. This is you doing this. I know this is from you, and I'm crying out to you. You know what he's acknowledging? He's acknowledging, I know that I deserve this. He's not complaining. He's not saying to the Lord, as perhaps Job would, at least in the earlier portions of Job, I don't deserve this. He doesn't argue with the Lord. You put me here, but Lord, just consider what you're getting ready to do. This is why I had to intervene and go the other way. He doesn't do any of that. He cries out to the Lord. He's crying out for mercy. Because he, and he recognizes this is a just punishment from the Lord. And that in itself is part of that humility. That, that's part of him him being humbled before the Lord is to understand that in this particular time, he himself is in need of God's grace and of God's mercy. Just as he was getting ready to deny the Ninevites, you don't deserve this, we deserve this, and now he's acknowledging, I need this. I need your grace and I need your mercy. And I'm crying out, as it were, from hell. This is darkness here. The conditions that I'm, that I'm, that I'm in Oh, Lord, it's as if I've been excluded from your presence, expelled from your side, as he says in verse four. He is indeed in, in a prison of sorts. This whole thing is is what he is learning as far as in this one aspect of things. He is learning humility. But he's learning his need for God's grace as well himself. I said, I've been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. That's an amazing statement in itself. It's as if he's saying, I once looked to your temple. I once looked to 
the joy of serving you, looking towards your presence, and then I turned away, but I will look again. Again, in this, this time of distress, the Lord is turning his head, as it were, look back, look back to me. The water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Listen to this language that he's using here. The weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with, with its bars was around me forever. You think of the hopelessness that he, is, that he is experiencing in these moments. In this three days in the belly of this fish. No hope. And yet... There is an understanding and a courage on his part to call out to the Lord. A yearning once again to seek the Lord his God, whereas before he was fleeing his presence. And the cause of it is great distress. You've brought up my life from the pit, O oh Lord my God. Think of that. He could be dead he could have been expelled from, from the living. But yet he finds himself preserved alive. The Lord has allowed him to live. And perhaps there might be maybe some anticipation on Jonah's part that if the Lord has given me time and is preserving my life, maybe he's anticipating perhaps in some sense though not with the full surety that the Lord will deliver him. The dead, the place of the dead is where he could be, but the Lord is preserving him. What is it that he's needing? All of these things that are coming upon him. He is a Jew. He's a Hebrew. This is God's covenant people. They're the ones with the covenants and the statutes and the feasts and, and the, the law and all of this. They're, they're deserving of God's grace. And Jonah's finding out, no, we're not deserving of anything. But, oh, Lord, you have extended it to me. He's extended grace to Jonah. He's extended mercy to Jonah. The very thing that he wants to withhold from others. He's understanding his just punishment of his rebellion against the Lord. He's understanding his own personal need for mercy and grace. But as we're moving through here, he's, he's humbled. He understands his need for God's grace and mercy. And he remembers, perhaps, with this language that he uses here, of the joy that he once had of serving the Lord. He says in verse 7, While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. In the time in which he is fainting away. As he, as he says of himself. What is it that is on his mind? What is it that he's thinking about? He's thinking about the time of being at the temple. He's thinking about his time of praying unto the Lord. Of rejoicing before the Lord. And of worshiping before the Lord. These things are on his mind in the moments in which he thinks he is going to die. These are the things that many of us will be thinking, perhaps, in our time in which we are getting ready to perish. Maybe there's some regret on the part of Jonah. Whereas, oh Lord, here I am in rebellion against you, but I remember, I remember what it was like. And the joy that filled my heart to be in the place of your presence in your holy temple to worship and to honor you. And look what I've done. Maybe those are the thoughts that have come to Jonah's mind. It seems to be something that comes to our minds or comes to the minds of many in their, in their time of departing this world. Mike Avendroth, who, who I've mentioned a, a time or two, who was one of my preaching advisors, he'll be at the, the conference next year. He, if I understand right, he had a real difficult battle with, with COVID, thinking that he was going to die. Here he is in, in the hospital 
He's isolated from everyone. He's alone. And the very things that he began to think on his mind was, have I done enough? Have, have I honored the Lord enough? Have I done any of these things? And he kept going through these things in his mind because he thinks he's going to die. He thinks that the time is near. And so the very things that he begins going over in his mind is, is has he done enough? I'm getting ready to meet the Lord. I'm getting ready to go to the place that the Lord has prepared, but, I ha- but meeting him. Have I done enough? Is the Lord pleased with me? And this is where, for Dr. Abendroth, for himself anyway, he thought to himself, no, I've not done enough. I've not worshipped enough. I've not prayed enough. I've not honored the Lord enough as I should have. But it's not dependent upon me. It's all dependent upon him. And therein lies my assurance that I will come into the presence of my king. These are the things that, that fill our minds, perhaps. I mean, we can think of that, even the thought of dying. What does it bring to our minds, our families, and specifically the Lord? The thought of meeting him, of standing in his presence. Jonah is at that place. He's fainting away, but he remembers the Lord. He remembers praying. He remembers the temple. He remembers these things that, 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 are, are, that are now expelled from his sight. But he does understand, once again, that these, that his, that his, that his present condition is because of his own actions. Because in verse 8 he says, Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. Now why is it out of all this, this prayer that he is offering to the Lord, why would he say anything like this? I mean, you have him using this language of, of his agony and the great distress that he's in, the hopeless state that he's in, all of this. And then he says, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. And it's like, why, why did he say that? Well, some theologians such as Dr. Boyce would look at this passage and he would say that Jonah is once again acknowledging his own rebellion and sin. Because anything that we place before the Lord is a vain idol. And so for Jonah, what was it that he placed before the Lord? Perhaps his own pride? It's a vain idol. Maybe that's what he's acknowledging of, him, of, of, his, of his own self. Anything that is placed before the Lord... And it can be people, it can be things, it can be outlooks of life, it can be our own self. Anything that we put in the place of God is an idol. It's a vain idol. And that's what Jonah had did. Perhaps he elevated himself to a place that was not his. By telling the Lord that I know what's best here and what's best is that I don't go there I mean that's what he's acknowledging but here's the, here's the interesting part of, of much of this too concerning all that he is talking about of his present circumstances you get to verse 9 and he says but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Now this is very similar to what had happened with the heathen sailors. You find them in great distress. And what do they do? They call upon the Lord. They offer sacrifices to the Lord. And they make vows. And here Jonah, who is... Perhaps you can say in one sense he's a little bit racist. But here you find him. 
doing the very same thing, finding himself in great distress, calling upon the Lord, making vows and promising to sacrifice. No different than the sailors that were on board with him. That which I have vowed, I will pay. The calling that you have placed upon my life, if given another chance, he would pay. He would fulfill it. And that he does. And he says these words, salvation is from the Lord. It's not mine to dictate who receives it and who doesn't. It's not Jonah's to decide. It's the Lord's. It is his sovereign freedom to extend his salvation to whomever he chooses. And the very thing that his people are not to do is to say, I don't think they deserve it. Because perhaps the Lord will chasten us and say, you didn't deserve it. Look at what you're finding yourself in and being humbled by the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. It is of the Lord. It, is, it originates with him. And he gives it to whomever he chooses to give it to. And we are not to decide who is deserving and who isn't. Because if that were the case, we would have to exclude ourselves. We're not deserving of it either. After praying this prayer and acknowledging this great truth that is leading up to this. That great truth that all of that led up to is salvation is from the Lord. We read... Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Derek Thomas, commenting from Spurgeon, Spurgeon said that this fish must have been an Armenian fish. Because whenever, whenever Jonah says salvation is of the Lord, the fish vomits him out. Maybe it was an Armenian fish. <laughs> yeah, I don't tolerate that in my gut. Three days, three nights. He is in the belly of this fish. Preserved by the Lord. In a hopeless state. And yet, God extends grace to him. God extends mercy. Even to the point that Jonah is giving thanks to the Lord. Because perhaps of the time that God has given him. He could have allowed him to die. But the Lord is preserving his life. And by preserving his life and teaching him this lesson, Jonah is able to once again call upon the Lord in faith. In a right standing. With a repentant heart. And so there is that, that thanksgiving. That thankfulness in Jonah's heart. For what he has received from the Lord. Because he is not deserving of it. Himself, not deserving of it. But he is thankful for it. It acknowledges that very truth. Salvation is from the Lord. Now, this is a very, again, this is a very unique situation. This is one that, that no other has endured as Jonah did. And there, there are some things to consider because we know the rest of the book. Jonah learned some great lessons within the belly of the fish. Did he fully learn his lesson? No, he didn't. Because he's still, he's still having to learn again of the mercy and grace of God once you get to chapter 4. He has, he has mercy on this plant that was once there and gone, but he doesn't have mercy on the people that he's waiting for the Lord to destroy. And, and that's really, that's the Christian life right there. We learn the lesson in the moments in which our distress occurs, and we cry out to the Lord, and we repent and we, we, we try to get back into a right standing with the Lord. And yet then we find ourselves a little later not fully understanding or not fully learning our lesson. And then we find ourselves repenting again and coming before the Lord. And it's a recognition that, one, we are never going to be fully sanctified in this life. That our life is going to be a battle. 
continually battling with the corruption that is in us. While we learn things and we seek to do things, we find ourselves doing the very things that we hate, just as the Apostle Paul says. But here's, here's the great comfort and the encouragement in all of that, just as it was for Jonah, that the Lord did not desert him. The Lord did not abandon him. The Lord says, you're mine. I will chastise you. You will, you, you will call upon me in repentance. I will preserve you. You're mine. Even, even in view of our, our, our sinfulness and, and our, that, that corruption that is still present within us, our failings, the Lord has not abandoned us. This is the reality of the Christian life. It is a continual daily repentance from the people of God to their Father. We will not arrive in this life. But one day we will. One day the very, the very areas in which we fail now, we fail to pray as much as we should, or we fail to obey as much as we should, we fail to worship as we should. We find ourselves, even in the time of, of worshiping among the saints, whether we're singing a song or we're hearing the scripture read or the scripture preached to us, we find ourselves, our minds still wandering into something else. We don't, we don't worship as we should or honor God as we should. But one day we will. One day we will do this right. And that's why when we look at our particular circumstances and we look at our lives and we look at the corruption that still remains within us, this is why that it has to be that the Lord, by his sovereign power, preserves us until the end because it cannot be done in and of ourselves. It has to be him. And that's where, even in our distress, recognizing our sin and, and, and how we failed the Lord or how we didn't honor the Lord, these are the things that drive us to him. I'm still believing because you have preserved me. I am still saved because you have not abandoned me. You have not abandoned my, my soul, the Sheol. But you've you preserved me. And you've brought up my life from the pit. You've allowed me to remember the joy of my salvation. You've allowed me to remember the greatness of who you are. That I can run to you. And know that your mercies are new every morning. These, these are the lessons that we learn in life. And lessons that we have to learn a number of times. But it is, it is necessary on our part. In view of the God whom we serve. To keep striving. Not in our own power. Because we need him to do anything. But we don't give up. We don't look to ourselves. For our assurance, our assurance is in him. But what he has called us to do is to take the kingdom by storm. As Thomas Watson says in Matthew chapter 11, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. There are not any unregenerate man that can do anything to the kingdom of God. So as the Puritan Thomas Watson says that this is in reference to those that are in Christ striving with everything that they have in order to lay hold of that which is laid hold of them. Though we fail and though we find ourselves in times being just like Jonah, when the Lord has brought us back and restored us back, we, go, we keep going, we keep moving forward, we keep pressing on, not looking back, but continually looking forward with thanksgiving in our hearts, knowing that I'm still here because he has preserved me. I'm still here because his love for me has not left. It has not diminished, not one degree. I am his and he is mine. So let us be encouraged that there's a man like Jonah written for us in the scripture. Because often we find ourselves just like him. But then we're reminded, just as it was for him, 
Grace and mercy have been extended to me. And my Lord has preserved me. My Lord loves me. And there is nothing that can separate me from the love of God. The very failings that I have in this life, one day, He will perfect these in me. And it helps us even more to yearn for that day and to look forward to that day. So in our meantime, let us press on. Let us keep moving forward. Let us battle with the flesh. Let us battle with ourselves and the corruption that is in us. Never, never ceasing. Never giving up. And when we find ourselves in the time of distress where the chastening hand is upon us, let us not look to the Lord in bitterness, but to look to the Lord and say, Thank you for giving me eyes to see once more. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you that we can call upon you as our Father. That once you were our judge, but in the time in which the Holy Spirit has brought us to faith, we have the privilege of calling you Father. And that privilege will, will never be taken away from us. For you have called us you have justified us in your sight and you promise that for those who behold your son and believe in him will be raised up on the last day that you will glorify us. Father, thank you for your continued grace and continued mercy in our lives. We, we often fail and when we do deserve your judgment, you often don't render it, but you extend more grace. Father, Father, help us. Forgive us. We need, we need you every day and every moment. We find ourselves straying so often. Help us, Lord, by the power of the Spirit who resides within us to continually remember and reflect upon the God who has called us. And the love that you extended to us in your son. Let us remember. That Christ Jesus did not die. That we may freely continue in sin. The sin that he suffered so greatly for. But that he died in order to deliver us. Thank you. For this reality. For this. For this. Status that we find ourselves before you. In the righteousness of your son, thank you so much for justifying us on account of him. He is our assurance. He is our hope. And Father, help us then to walk worthy of our calling and to keep moving forward, persevering by your power until the day you call us home. Be glorified in us. Use us mightily for your honor. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, Amen. Thank you for your attention, and you are dismissed.